is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We're going to talk now to Mark Steers, who is Director of the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney and author of a new book. It's called Out of the Ordinary, How Everyday Life Inspired a Nation and How It Can Again. Mark, hello. Hello. And before we get into any of that, you and Ed go way back. You were a speechwriter of his for a long time. You worked very closely with him. You're good friends. Tell me about the first time ever you saw his face. <laughs> was it across a crowded room? What was that first meeting? I first met Ed. I don't know if he remembers this, but I first met Ed queuing up for lunch in yes. the on the very first day. Yes. And we were in the wrong I place. Uh, we were. <laughs> trying to get in to get what our sausages and chips, you know. Uh, yep. And uh, yeah, that was it, really. Wow. And was it like an American teen movie? You wanted to sit at Ed's table because he was one of the cool kids? That's it. No, that's not. That's, definitely, that's a long way from the truth. <laughs> one of the square kids. Was Ed as square as he paints? He, he makes out that he was incredibly square at university. Is, is, is that 100% true? No, not in the slightest. Uh, you know, no, Ed was like, you know, the only square thing about Ed was that he wore the same... A uh, bright blue jumper every day uh, for three years, I think. So I think every photograph I've got uh, of those times at college. I'm actually still wearing the bright blue jumper. I think you've noticed. It's the same one. <laughs> you set a trend. We were all doing it by the end. So, so how, how did you end up working for him then? The key thing was when the Labour government fell in 2010 and, you know, there was just a huge sense of... Uh, the party needing to, you know, rebuild, reshape. You know, I was teaching at Oxford University uh, in 2010 and all the students and the, you know, politics professors and stuff were in the, uh, you know, watching the election on a big screen. Um, and it was a pretty hard night, um, obviously. Uh, but then when Ed appeared uh, to, you know, doing his sort of post-election interview at four o'clock in the morning or whatever, uh, 200 students or so left in the room and there's just this huge cheer uh, and there was this fantastic moment of sense of like, OK, out, out of defeat is going to come uh, revival and renewal. And, uh, you know, this is the man who's going to do it for us. I don't think I've ever told you this story, Mark, but um, there's a colleague of mine. And I said to him, um, maybe I could get Mark Steers to come and be my speechwriter. And he was like, no chance. <laughs> Uh, there's no way he's going to want to do that he's a professor at oxford forget about it so i was so convinced he he sort of knew you and he's obviously in touch with you and, he, and i said oh well okay maybe he's not going to do it um but anyway so so i but i then sort of you know thought well actually maybe it's worth trying uh we should talk we should talk about the the book um Maybe we should start by talking about uh, what you mean when you talk about the the politics of everyday life. You also say politics focuses too much on abstraction. So just talk us uh, uh, about those ideas a little bit, if you would, wouldn't mind. Yeah, I mean, I think look, the 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 truth is we kind of knew this coming in in 2010 already. Like you know, look, I'm a Labour person and wish the government well, but there was a sense of you know having been in office for so long. Uh, uh, it just the sort of gulf had emerged between ordinary people living their ordinary lives and, you know, the sort of expectations and understandings of the people at the top of the party and, you know, people trying to govern. And, you know, again, that's not because of bad character or, you know, sort of people's bad intentions. It's just what happens when, you know, professional people get into a rut and into a groove and everything becomes about 
the way in which they look at the world rather than the way in which the world is experienced by the rest of us. And then, you know, we tried, I guess, when I was working with Ed to do everything we could to sort of close that gap uh, between the way that, you know, most of us experience the world and, you know, the way that people at top of political parties do. But it's really, really hard, you know, because, like, you know, being a politician is a really difficult job and you're bombarded with expertise all the time and, you know, pollsters and strategists. And, uh, and again, it, you know, separates you uh, every day from, you know, people who are you know, getting on the bus or going on the train or going to work or trying to look after the kids. Um, and that's that fundamental division, I think, is to blame for a lot of all the things that we've gone through since, you know, not just in the UK, but in other countries too. This, this sense that you know, far too many people have um, that even, you know, the well-intentioned politicians don't really understand what the structures and you know, rhythms of their everyday lives are. And that's really what the book is about, is you know, pointing that out and suggesting a few ways that we might be, go about changing it. And you make the point that, you know, when you had access to all the polling, things like spending more time uh, with family are right there, uh, the list of priorities that the general public have for what they want out of a life. But if you you tried to broach that in your world of of politics, you would kind of slap down for it. Yeah. And and again, you know, it's, I think, as much as anything about expectations. I mean, it's just like it becomes a strong professionalized sense of what's possible to campaign on and what's not possible to campaign on uh, and you know there's a sort of uh, playbook or a copybook that has worked well at elections in the past and gets sort of rolled out you know, to play well for elections in the future um, and you know and again a natural sort of anxiety that many politicians have from moving away from that playbook even when people are telling them like loud and clear you know even in polling like stop talking about all that stuff and start talking about this stuff instead you know um i mean you've talked about this on the show before but it's things like i mean people really interested in buses in their everyday life like how are they going to get to work how are they going to get the kids to school uh you know uh, are they going to turn up on time are they going to be too expensive and, and trying to get a proper conversation about that at you know elite level politics is just really really hard because people think it's not not the kind of thing that's sexy enough to get on the front page of the newspapers i wonder whether mark you want to talk about the people you write about in the book like orwell Priestley, dylan thomas and others and just sort of what what that group should teach us because it's it's that's kind of the book the book book is yeah. uh, structured around telling the the story of a particular part of the last century through their writings and what was going on culturally at the time yeah so i had this i mean the truth of this is that i i had this idea um you know we'd lost the election uh the brexit referendum was lost you know then trump was happening and you know i was in a particularly melancholic state really uh, and then my dad passed away and I was at my dad's funeral and I, I write about this in the book um, and it, we buried him on a hillside in Wales um, where I'm from um, and suddenly I suddenly thought I looked around all the people who had come uh, to the funeral and they were you know the taxi drivers who had driven him to hospital when he was too ill to drive himself or to get on public transport and the nurses and colleagues from work and next door neighbours and and I suddenly thought, oh, my gosh, this is a community standing around at an incredibly important moment. Um, and everybody knows each other. Everyone cares for each other. Everyone looks out for each other. And then my head went to Dylan Thomas, who's a, you know, a, 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 was a poet. Everyone knows that. And when you're a kid in Wales, you study endless Dylan Thomas poems. And I never really thought about it politically before. But I suddenly thought, oh, actually, 
This is what Thomas was writing about. All of Thomas's poems and essays, letters, were about community life and about the incredible power that ordinary people have to make a difference to each other. And just to, to you know, to the, the crucial moments in life, like you know, funerals and marriages and illnesses, um, you know, and the good moments as well. You know, oh, marriages are good moments. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> you, you come together with those people around you. And then I thought, like, look at look at politics, and just politics doesn't feel like that. You know, they don't; those moments don't feel like that, and those people don't seem to be represented. So I thought, oh, well, I'll, I'll go and look about what you know what what people were writing when Thomas was alive, and sure enough, I very quickly discovered you know all of his writing is full with exactly this this issue, which is you know he says constantly in his writings like. When I look at Westminster and committees and politicians, I just don't see the things which I treasure. And he says, I'm a socialist, so I, I don't know what to make of that. Like, I meant to think of politics as this fantastic transformative possibility, but it just doesn't look like the things that I really treasure in my everyday life. And, like, what can we do about that? Just say a bit more about that in terms of the time before we come to today and the implications for today. The time's really important. Because, look, the, the 1930s and 40s were a moment when the Labour Party was really growing. Uh, you know, the Great Depression, unemployment, then, the, of course, the Second World War. And then you had this moment in 1945 when Labour was elected with this huge landslide. And to most people looking back, you think, well, that was a clearly straightforwardly wonderful moment for Labour and the left. Um, and the NHS was going to be built and the welfare state, etc. Um, but actually, when you look back you see elements of the concerns we have today there as well. Because what Thomas and Priestley and Orwell and others were saying was, well, hold on a minute, like, in all your excitement, don't get so carried away to forget the people that you're meant to be doing this for. You know, don't just construct systems and structures which can be run from Westminster by experts who've gone to Oxford or the London School of Economics. You know, try to think about how are you going to keep the voices and concerns of ordinary people absolutely in the centre of what you're trying to do in your political life. And, and that's really what animated Thomas in those later years was just like, well, hold on a minute, you say you're governing in people's interests, but where are the people? And just take something like the NHS. And I, one of the things that struck me about the book is I know you've got, you think there were lots of things about, I guess you think there are lots of things about the 1945 government that were positive, but, you know, reading the book, you one comes out, with quite a melancholic view of that government um but but if take something like the nhs at the time what did they think was missing for, i mean you know we think of it now as a great that the institution was created and so on and i do think that but but what were they thinking was missing from it yeah so i think at the at the time again you know the basic idea obviously phenomenally exciting and you know, healthcare free at the point of use and available to everybody, everybody, you know, uh, hugely animated by that notion. The thing that is missing, though, is a sense that you can control as a normal person, you can control the destiny of the institution or that you have a say in what kind of thing gets, uh, you know, invested in or you know, what kind of treatments are rolled out or that you don't feel as if you're always at the mercy of the, you know, inverted commas, people who know best. Uh, that there's a sort of opportunity for local voice. So it's not the sense that, you know, patients should rule and doctors shouldn't. That's, that's you know, no one's saying that. It's not a sort of Michael Gove attack on experts. It's just that, you know, what's the vehicle or the mechanism to ensure that, you know, ordinary people have a say in the way that this incredibly important institution is run, both locally and nationally? 
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. You see, I, I mean, I think reading your book and thinking uh, and thinking about its implications, I think there are... Th- th- I'm going to complicate the conversation, which is probably kind of characteristic here. Um, I think there are three different things that you might be saying, and I'd be interested you to just speculate on them. The first is what you've just said, which is, you know, people need to be at the heart of change and, and you know, their voice needs to be the, the heart of institutions. One thought that occurred to me as I was reading your book is, uh, a friend of ours who's a big community organiser, Arnie Graf, always used to make the distinction between tax credits, which were a thing which I think is a kind of worthy and important thing that the Labour government did, but came from the centre, whereas the living wage was something that arose from ordinary people's experiences, which wasn't just about people's income, but was about sort of dignity at work, being paid a proper wage, all of that, um, which somehow goes beyond the income question. So, so that's one, and, 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 you know, voice in the health service is another. So, so that's kind of one chunk of this. But then I think there's two other things that you're saying, which, are, which would be interesting to hear your thoughts on. The, 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 the first of those is that, and I'm going to sort of put this badly, but the activities of everyday life matter and are underestimated in what politics uh sort of champions and so you know you talk at various points i think about you know public space because it encourages communal activity people getting to know each other a whole range of of things um so so that's one thing it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts on and then there's a sort of second thing which i think is sort of um more of a challenge i think which is I think this is the right way to put it, that you feel that some people on the left, well, maybe on the right too, are sort of contemptuous of people who think differently, you know, the everyday, you know, people's views, um, and 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 it sort of leads to sort of an angry agenda, also not angry, but sort of um, a, 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 an agenda which is contemptuous. I, th- I think that's what you're saying. And... Uh, and and we need more respect for people who have different views. Yeah, 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 brilliant. I mean, that's what Ed always does. It's, it's fantastic, yeah. I mean, like, uh, that's exactly right. I mean, to take that last one first, I mean, I want yeah. to I say, look, look, it, it sometimes comes across as contempt, but isn't. It's just that people are in a rush, you know. So, so you know, you get into power, for example, and you want to make nice things happen, good things happen. You want more equality, you want more social justice or whatever. And you think, well, I've got to do it now. Um, but doing it now and not taking the time actually to work out uh, well, what, to, what, you know, what do the people who aren't around the table actually want us to do and how are they going to have an opportunity to have an input in this and how are they going to hold us to account uh, if we I guess I was more thinking about, like, your views on, like, you know, 
Twitter anger and all of that. Yeah, no, I think I think activism. Look, look, this is the most controversial thing I probably say in the book. Look, I think one of the worries for the left is that um, activism, which on the whole is a very good thing, you know, people wanting to make change and get involved in politics and you know make the world a better place, it sometimes displays that impatience. Uh, at the at the most extreme end, you know, so that people really, really want the change to happen now, and they don't really want to care about what are the reasons it shouldn't happen, or what are the reasons that it might have to happen in a different kind of way, or um, you know, have we really listened to people that we're claiming to represent carefully enough? Um, you know, I, I was talking to a, a friend in the US today. Um, you know, he was a strong supporter of the Democratic Party, excited that Biden beat Trump, of course, etc. But she was saying, look, I'm really worried by all these executive orders that are happening at the start of the presidency. He's just like legislating by, by diktat. And like, I can understand why you want to get on and make change. But if you don't bring people with you, if you don't listen to people, if you don't give people some kind of influence and power, not only are you going to make bad decisions, but they're going to feel excluded, left out, and you're know, treated with contempt. And I, that's really what I think my, my primary critique of the kind of activism we've seen a lot of in recent years is. But, okay, but that is interesting and, and important. But I think that takes to, to the nub of, of a question, which is, which is the, the you know, big change. I mean, big change is going to upset some people. The NHS definitely upsets some people. Um, if you think about the changes that Mrs. Thatcher brought since, you know, from 1979 onwards, they definitely upset a lot of people. Now, we're not in favour of, well, I'm not in favour of lots of those changes. But, but you know, doesn't big change by its nature cause division? But if the, if division is the pre, is not having division is the precondition, aren't you going to end up not having change? No, no, that's right. I mean, you're absolutely right. Look, the big change is going to always have uh, opposition and opponents and enemies. And what you don't want to say is that those people have a veto on the kind of change that we need. But there are two ways of getting big change. You know, the, the first way, and again, this is something I try and say in the book, the first way is you start small, local, and build your power and build your support uh, and involve people in the process, which then creates the opportunities for genuine bigness. And my personal view is that that's when big change is at its best. And two great examples of that. In in Britain, actually, a lot of the changes that happened after the Second World War were like that. They'd started as trade union campaigns or cooperative party campaigns or even faith group campaigns in the 1920s and 30s. And they built slowly over time, you know, finding their support, testing their ideas, you know, until you have this opportunity of a government which can then enact change. So many of the best bits of the Attlee government, uh, there's a wonderful book by Paul Addison called The Road to 1945, which makes this claim, you know, took a long time to build. Probably in, in more recent history, The civil rights movement in the United States is a fantastic example like this. And our friend Arnie Graf often tells us those stories. You know, it wasn't all about Martin Luther King and then the Voting Rights Act. It was slow activity to desegregate bus stations and desegregate schools and desegregate ice rinks and libraries that started actually uh, in the middle 1940s and built through the 50s and 60s. And the basic argument there is you can't short circuit or shortcut that kind of issue if you do, you're reliant upon power alone, and power alone actually never brings the kind of change that we want to see uh, on the progressive well, side. Look, this is, these are very difficult questions, and in a way I'm going to ask, an, I guess, an answerable question, which is, if you take the climate crisis and what Biden is doing, you know, he doesn't have the time 
Climate, I think, is the hardest one because I definitely agree that there is a matter of sort of scientific urgency on climate. You know, it's a it's a kind of case where, uh, you know, the top clock really is ticking uh, and you need action. And therefore, the impetus to, to, to you know, move to action as quickly as possible is, I think, you know, totally understandable and, and you know, crucial. Um, the but, I guess, I always come back to is that actually, if you want to have sustainable change, the, the, the sort of... Um, you know, trying to short circuit it, trying to move too quickly, although it's so tempting, isn't going to do the trick for you because it's just not sustainable. So you 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 have to move on multiple fronts. Uh, you know, so so you might need to to, to speed up. I mean, I just, just don't dispute that. You know, I, I don't dispute the argument that there is a uh, as I say a, a ticking ticking clock. Um, but if you're going to actually win you're going to have to persuade people. You're going to have to bring people with you, at least enough of them. And that's not always going to happen through, you know, the declarations of emergency or the, or the sort of, you know, the, the crucial anxiety. That is often going to happen more slowly, more carefully. And there's a trade-off there that we're going to have to make. And, you know, the job of great politicians is to, is to use their judgment uh, to work out, you know, when, when it's right to move fast and when it's right to move slow. So, so as part of the politics of everyday life, then framing an issue like the climate crisis in in terms of people's everyday life and what the future of that would look like? I think that, that we, we've already seen a fabulous transformation in climate campaigning towards the politics of the everyday over the last decade. You know, so, you know, many of my friends uh, have been involved in exactly that, trying to take what looked like a big abstract question, you know, with scientific graphs and uh, complicated equations uh, and, you know, sort of, you know, clever people on the TV telling them about the nature of global warming and taking it into actual day-to-day life and the impacts on particular communities, the impacts on you know, people's op- opportunities, job opportunities, but also the, you know, the sort of impact on what they can do or can't do uh, as the world heats up around them. I mean, the impact here, I'm you know, dialing in from Australia, you know, the, the bushfires that we had a year ago, um, which you know, cloaked the sky in ash, for weeks, you know, the sky was red uh, and it rained ash uh, for days on end. And people suddenly understand uh, climate in a way that they haven't understood it before. Um, and then, you know, the, the possibilities for campaigning and the possibilities for action, even fast action, are definitely enhanced uh, by that kind of realisation. You don't want to have to wait for the bushfires to happen everywhere, uh, but you do have to take the story of it and the feeling of it um, you know the feeling that we had here in Sydney uh, to as many people as you possibly can to get them to commit to changes which are going to be very difficult for some, even if they opened great opportunities for others. You know, the vast majority of political expression in the UK today, you know, even after everything we went through, even after Brexit, uh, the the way that politicians talk, the issues that they think about, are still so far divorced. From what goes on in most uh, you know everyday communities and people you know sitting around the kitchen table or talking at the end of the day at work that that gap is still there um, and the answer I think for us is to say okay how can we shrink that you know so if we've got ideals on the left things we want to achieve justice equality sustainability how can we talk about those in a way which involve uh, ordinary people um, and resonate with the concerns that people have in their daily lives. It's about really translating the bigness of politics uh, to the particularities of people's real lives. 
And in terms of those particularities, this this definition of an everyday life, how do you go about pinning that down? Because what what my everyday life and, and what I would want it to be as a middle aged dad of a young kid, it might be very different to that of you know somebody in the early twenties. What is that sense of everyday life in common? Do you think you can get a bit closer to describing what that is? Yeah, I mean, I think at its core, there are relationships. It's a very, in a way, a very technical, jargony term, but there are relationships that matter to people in their everyday lives. And if you if you do this, if you if you get groups of people, you know, young people, old people, rich people, poor people, diff- different ethnicities, different sexualities, etc., and ask them what are the fundamental things that they value in their life, then they will talk you through their relationships. There'll be family relationships, there'll be relationships with neighbours, uh, the people that they know at work. Some of those relationships will be good and affirming and you know build their confidence, make them think that life's worth living. Some of those relationships will be abusive or repressive or exploitative. But that's the way that most people think about whether their lives are going well or whether their lives are going badly. Um, and that we all have in common, you know, as sort of human beings, uh, independent of all the other various things which are different about us. And, you know, now in COVID of all times, that ought to be clear to us, I think, because we're all, you know, like horrible cliche about being in it together, and clearly we're not in it together in certain important ways. But actually, people are struggling with isolation and lockdown and separation that comes from it, you know, precisely because it's stopping them leading the lives, you know, for good reason, but nonetheless, it's stopping them leading the lives uh, that they know that they value, like meeting their mates at the pub or, you know, going out for the evening or, you know, just bumping into people at lunch at work. And they can't do any of that stuff at the moment. So I think, you know, COVID has revealed what matters to people. Then you do this, you look back at politics and say, is that what we're hearing from our political leaders? That we're going to make those relationships stronger and easier and get rid of the repressive and the exploitative ones. I just think far too often still politics is silent on all of that. It doesn't have anything to say to it. Um, and, and people feel that, that differential. They know that. Um, so that's basically where I would go. On the writers in the book, um, you, you do discuss at one point some of some of them having, uh, by today's standards, certainly problematic views on race and immigration. What is the balance um, between understanding that those views were normal in that time versus romanticising their work? Yeah, so I think you've got to work out, or it's a really tricky one, this, because you've always got to try and work out how fundamental to their worldview um, you know, the, 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 the problematic bits of their thinking were. And I think, you know, that different... Indi- I, I take that view differently for different people I talk about in the book. I mean, um, J.B. Priestley, who was a huge hero on the left in the you know, 1930s and 40s, uh, and, you know, still read today in, in schools, you know, um, in, in, in some classrooms. Like, he had horrific views on immigration, um, and not immigration, you know, uh, in the way that we think about it today, but, you know, mainly his concern was Ireland and Irish immigration into, into England. Um, and I do think, and I try and say it in the book, I think that reveals something particularly difficult about um, taking Priestley seriously. For all the wonderful bits that there are in Priestley's book, English Journey, which is a very, you know, sentimental and, you know, um, you know some romantic book, it, it has these passages which are just appalling. Uh, and we have to call that out. Um, uh, and you know, and I try and do that as, as thoroughly as I can in the in the text. Um, the, the the 
the fundamental point, though, remains, which is that uh, for for most of the writers, artists, you know, photographers I talk about in the book, um, they hadn't thought hard enough about empire, for example, or gender, um, but they didn't actually uh, sort of propound views themselves which uh, were, you know, problematic uh, in, in any fundamental sense, you know. So, so that you can hold them to account, I think, for not doing enough, and we should do that. Um, but they certainly weren't themselves sort of repressive in, in a way which I think we would all find deeply problematic today. Uh, and my instinct there is, were they part of our conversation today, they would be thinking much more imaginatively about those questions. So we have a thing on the podcast called The Jeffocracy. I am a very benign, supreme leader i'm I'm very lazy so very hands-off ed is a puppet prime minister um mark's I mean, writing may, my you, speeches isn't he you may be thinking I'm, I'm about to offer you a job as speechwriter, but oh no uh, it's a promotion um i i appoint you minister for the everyday what does the politics of everyday life look like enacted what what, what do we need to be doing to move from where we are to there we all hope that we're going to be coming out of the pandemic at the you know second part of this year or you know coming into next year uh, my own view is that the relationships which you know, make life worthwhile have really um, suffered during this covid period you know people haven't been able to uh, build friendships uh, you know sort of connect with each other relate with each other in the workplace uh, they haven't been able to go to the theater or to you know museums or to galleries they haven't been able to make music and as a result uh, the things which people really treasure in their everyday lives have, have been hammered. Um, and because all of our attention has been on the virus, you know, rightly so, uh, and getting the virus under control, we, we, we haven't paid any attention to that. I would love to see, you know, the government act, enact a plan for how you're going to restore those relationships, giving people the time that they need uh, to be able to reconnect, ensuring that the arts and creative industries are restored so that people have places to go to be stimulated in ways that they haven't been able to be during the pandemic. You're opening up our public spaces so that people can meet again each other. Um, yeah, that's the, a plan for a post-pandemic social relationship uh, strategy. That's where I want to get. Sounds pretty good to me. <laughs> Jeff, does he get the job? Absolutely. Okay, you'd have to do my speeches a little. I mean, I know you probably wouldn't let me. You probably wouldn't let me say anything very often. So I'd uh, use a deep I, fake. Uh, so I'd probably kind of there, there wouldn't be that many speeches. Mark, well, listen, uh, it's been fantastic to have you on. The book is uh, out of the ordinary. Um, Mark Sears, thank you very much. Thank you so much. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824.